Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast, and thanks for joining us for this episode. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy this content, please don't hesitate to leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends. We'd like to extend an invitation to you and your family to join us for worship this week at Grace Baptist Church. We'd also love to connect with you online at gracekettering.org. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy the episode. Second Timothy in chapter number three. We'll read the whole chapter and then go into the message. Verse number one says, This I know that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetousness, or covetous, boasters, proud blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unholy, unthankful, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further. For their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, and patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me, at Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, what persecution I endured, both of them that are of the Lord, uh, both out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, in all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving many and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that, from a holy ch- and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And here's the crux of what Paul is leading up to in the whole book. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You may be seated. The first thing that we see here is the description of the faithless generation. Uh, and Paul here is preparing Timothy for the times in which he will be living. As we go through, we, we, there's some words that especially uh, jump out to me. Uh, people will be lovers of their own selves, covetousness, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. They will be truce breakers, ones who break promises. They will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And they will have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. In that last verse especially, I think of uh, so many Christians who have maybe some Bible truth that they know, but when it comes to actually living the Spirit-filled life that God is offering them, it's not something they fully utilize and use all that God has given them. In the times that uh, Paul and Timothy were ministering in, they very much mirror the times of ourselves. And one thing I want to point out as we read those uh, very negative ideas in the first part of that chapter, I don't want to establish some sort of us versus them. 
the fact of it is, is when we're living in the flesh, these are all qualities that we will exhibit. Uh, I think of Galatians chapter 5 where it says, they that are, um, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then it, he goes on to explain the different fruits of the Spirit uh, compared with the works of the flesh. These are the works of the flesh described here. Uh, the focus, however, is people that are not born again. We are obviously born again, but we are just as susceptible to fall into these sins as anybody else when we're stepping out of step with the Spirit. Uh, in verse number 8, we'll see, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these men also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds and of reprobate concerning the faith. Now if you've ever done a word study on Janus and Jambres, you'll actually not find them in the Bible. So it helps to have a little bit of knowledge on um, extra-biblical literature. Our preacher this morning referenced that a little bit. Now Janus and Jambres are people that uh, in Jewish tradition, they're the names of the people that were given to the sorcerers of Moses' time. So when those uh, sorcerers came and Moses was saying, hey, let my people go, uh, Pharaoh brought his sorcerers and he said, all right, um, do the same miracles that Moses is doing. And Paul is saying here that just as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, the false teachers of your time will also withstand you. They will withstand the truth. And Paul gives a promise here. Um, the second point is the defeat of the faithless generation. He says that their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs was also. That word folly is, can also be translated or has the idea of stupidity. And when we look at the, the Old Testament account of what happened with the sorcerers there, what happened is they had their gods that they worshipped, and they were of like the, the, uh, the river, the frogs, the flies, the, the cattle, and, and those things. And they were the things that they worshipped that God turned around and used to plague against them. And it was manifest to everybody there that Jehovah was more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians. Paul is saying in the same way the folly of these false teachers will be apparent to everybody. That ultimately will come in the consummation of all things during the um, tribulation period when Christ comes and he reigns righteousness upon the earth. At that point, no one will be able to deny. But there's also a temporal element to where this has practical application for uh, Timothy then. He wasn't just pointing to the coming of Christ again in the tribulation, but he was also uh, saying, Timothy, the way that people are going to have the truth manifest and people's folly will be recognized is when you do the things that um, I'm instructing you to do in this letter. And there are several conditions that Paul is giving to Timothy for this promise to be fulfilled uh, that I see in the surrounding text. In 2.25, if you look there, Paul instructs Timothy in meekness instructing those that impose themselves if God preadventure will give them repentance according to the knowledge of truth. So one way that Timothy needs to confront these false teachers is by instructing them according to the truth, and that truth is found in the Word of God in the Scriptures. Another way that this promise will be manifest is in verse number 5 of chapter 3, where uh, he says, from such turn away. Those that are living this pervasive lifestyle, that are resisting the truth, those that are refusing to heed the instruction that you're giving them, he says, turn away from them. Get them out of the church. You don't need to be affected by them. You don't need to let them affect other people in the congregation. 
And then in, in verse 4-2, uh, this is actually the most frequent admonition that Paul gives to Timothy throughout the pastoral epistles, which is to teach and instruct the, word, uh, instruct the people according to the word of God. In verse uh, 4-2, it says, Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebu reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. The application here is the folly of our teachers, of the false teachers of our day, will also be exposed when we are knowing the scriptures, when we're obeying what God has said about them, about our conduct toward them, where we're reproving them according to, with meekness and long suffering, according to what God has said. And then ultimately, if it, if it gets to the point to where they're refusing to listen to what God has said, to where we ultimately turn away. I actually had an experience like this in my life. After I came to the Lord, I had a roommate who was a backslidden Christian. He had a form of godliness, but he denied the power thereof. I had never read 2 Timothy before, and the first time I read through it, it's like I read this, and it's God made it very clear, this person that you're living with, all these qualities, they're describing him, and God says, turn away from that person. There might be people out here that you're associated with, friends maybe, that are a poor influence on you. And God says, if you're going to be an overcomer in the midst of a faithless generation, you not only need to know the truth of the scriptures, but you need to turn away from those that refuse to hear the truth of the gospel and that are doing more harm to you than you are doing good to them. Paul wants Timothy also to know the scripture that he's been... Wait a minute. Wrong point. So uh, the question then comes, how? So how is all of this going to happen? And it culminates in the rest of the chapter. We see there's the defense against the faithless generation, which is heeding the word of God. If you look with me in verse number 10, after Paul has uh, given Timothy the, the description of the people of his generation, he says, but thou hast fully known my doctrine. He's saying, they live this way. They're doing these bad things. They're teaching uh, corrupt doctrine. But you, you have known my doctrine. You've known my manner of life. You've known my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my charity, and my patience. You've known the persecutions that it talks about in verse 11. And then it says, Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And it says, But evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, but continue in the things that thou hast heard. When Timothy is living according to the truth of the scripture, when he's living, um, when he's teaching correctly, when he's withdrawing from those that refuse to heed, the defeat of them is sure. Um, and that's where it says there, uh, for the folly will be manifest unto all men. Paul describes these people as reprobate concerning the faith. Where to go? Well, so Paul describes them as reprobate uh, concerning the faith. The idea of being reprobate concerning fa uh, the faith means that the faith has, um, when you compare their life with the faith of the gospel, that the faith has rejected them. So when you compare the two, their lives are not in line with one another. And ultimately, the way that Paul is going to, or Timothy is going to um, have the false teachers exposed in the way that the truth of God will go forward is when he knows exactly what the word of God is. We see that Timothy 
wants Paul or Paul wants Timothy to know that the scripture that he's been taught is one and inspired word. If we look in verse 16, Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for doctrine, and correction and righteousness, and it continues. So the first thing that Paul wants Timothy to know is that he's been given an inspired word. That word inspired is actually a word that Paul himself invented. It's a, a compound word called theonoustos. If we break that word into its parts, theos, it means God. When we talk about an atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God, and we talk about a theist, it's someone that believes in God. So these are concepts that we have embedded in our English language as well. And then noustos simply means breath or wind. So Paul is saying to Timothy, the word of God is inspired. It's God-breathed. So the Bible that you hold in your hands, it's literally the words that God has spoken out. That's where we get this doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. It simply means that every single word of God is what God has said. Now there's the manner of inspiration. How did this inspiration process work? And God tells us about that in 2 Peter uh, chapter number 1, and verse 17 and through 20. I'll read it. It says, For he, Jesus, received from God the Father holy honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard. And Peter's describing the transfiguration here. When we were with him in the holy mount, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in darkness, in a dark place, unto the, di unto the day dawn, and the day star arise in our hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the scripture that you hold in your hands, it wasn't just some man's idea where he came up and was like, I'm going to write some things down. Peter is telling us that no prophecy of the scripture is of any man's private interpretation. It's not his own ideas that he's come up with. But holy men of God spake, or in this case wrote things down, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So it, the scripture maintained the personality of the writers, of the Apostle Paul, like we see Paul's letters are different than Peter's letters. There's the personality of the person that's maintained, but it's also 100% the words of God. If we want to use an illustration for this, it's like a pen and a person writing. So when you write a letter to a friend, is it the pen writing it, or is it you? The answer is yes. God used people to write the Bible, just like you use a pen to write a letter to a friend. The application is that we can trust the Bible. First Timothy, or I'm sorry, Titus chapter 1 and verse number 2. If you just turn over one page, probably. It says, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. The simple thing that we see here is God can't lie. If the Bible came from God, and God can't lie, then the Bible is true. And this applies for the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Every single part of the Bible is true. You can trust it. The doctrines of uh, inerrancy, which means there's no errors, and infallibility, which means there's uh, nothing in the Bible that will fail, flow from this concept. Because God is truth. God cannot err, and the Bible is the word of God, hence the Bible cannot err. 
I don't know about you, but I was trained in public school. I was taught evolution from the time I was, you know, in my first science class. And when I got right with God and began following him, this was actually something that I struggled with. And ultimately, what it comes down to is, is God a liar or not? If God wrote the Bible, which clearly he did, then the first six chapters in Genesis, they have to be true. If the word of God's not true, then if all of it's not true, then none of it can be true. The Bible says that God cannot lie. God wrote the Bible, therefore all of it's true, and we can trust all of it. So Paul not only wants Timothy to see that he has a God-breathed word, but he also wants him to know that he has a profitable word. As we continue on in the verse there, it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Now, the word profitable there, it has the idea of useful or beneficial. If something is useful, that demands use, does it not? And my question for you is, how much do you actually use your Bible in a given week? I used to work at Menards uh, in the building material department, and I would sell people two-by-fours and steel and uh, drywall, things like that. And these people weren't coming to buy the building materials just so they could, you know, have it sit around and look at it. They were buying the building materials for a specific use. And God's message to you is the fact that God has given you the word of God, his word, his inspired word, to actually use. And the idea of uh, profitable is, is beneficial. So the word of God, if you read it, if you appropriate its truths to your life, you will find great benefit from it. The other thing that Paul wants Timothy to see about the scripture is that it's useful for doctrine. That word doctrine, it simply means teaching. So all good biblical teaching, all good Christian doctrine, it comes from the Bible. There are some Christian denominations out there that don't hold to the Bible as their sole authority for faith and practice, even though they may actually say that. In practice, it actually does not work that way. I had a, a what do they call those people that work in the hospital? Um, the clergy people that come in and Chaplain, sure, I, it's chaplain, yeah. I had a Lutheran chaplain come as I was in the hospital. I didn't invite him. I didn't, like, call for him in there or anything. But they have you fill out paperwork, and it says, you know, do you have any religious beliefs? And I put Christian on there. So they sent the Christian chaplain in, in there to talk to me and uh, found, uh, found out that he was a Lutheran guy and got to have some, you know, good conversations with him. And I eventually, you know, this is the second time he visited we started to talk about the more controversial things like baptism and, and what their belief on the Lord's Supper. And especially on the issue of, of baptism, I actually began to challenge him. So, you know, if we see from the scripture plainly that baptism is by believers only and it's by immersion, then why do you guys still, you know, do the whole infant baptism thing? And why do you believe that it takes away original sin when the Bible doesn't say that? And he said, well, when it gets right down to it, we, just, we can't say that the people that went before us are wrong. So in, in actuality, they've taken tradition, they've taken what Martin Luther and people like that, and they're elevating it above the Bible. There's a lot of uh, Christian doctrine out there that has no source in Scripture. And for you personally, it's easy for you to get carried away by some of that more deceptive doctrine if you don't know your Bible. So the question just is so obvious. Do you know your Bible? Do you read your Bible? Is it something that you just uh, kind of read mindlessly? 
Or is it something where you apply your mind, you apply your heart, you trust in the Spirit to illuminate His Word to you, and you allow that truth to change you? Not only is the Bible profitable for doctrine, but Paul continues and he says the, the Bible is profitable for reproof. That idea of reproof is strong confrontation of sin, and catch this, in order that a change in behavior may occur. So when you read the Bible, is it something where, again, you're just kind of mindlessly reading it? Or are you desiring God to confront your error so that you can be brought into a state of right relationship with God? And this statement is also probably aimed at the false teachers, where uh, he's saying, rebuke these false teachers. And then he goes on to the next point, and he's talking about um, correction. The word of God is profitable for correction. That term correction is a gentler term. That means restoring one to a right path and to set straight. And that's possibly aimed at those that are affected by those false teachers. That idea of being set straight, I have the idea of a, a broken bone. When uh, someone breaks a bone, one of the first things they'll do is they'll set it straight. It's a healthy bone before it was broken, and it just needs to be set, and sh set straight so it'll heal correctly. So for us, when we're uh, working with people, and when we're using the Word of God for our own lives, it's going to set us straight. If there's a friend or a brother or somebody like that who is living a life one way that's contrary to the Word of God, your job and your obligation is to, in a spirit of meekness, just as Paul instructed Timothy, to come alongside that brother and use the word of God for rebuke and for correction. To say, hey man, the way you're, not, the way you're living is not according to scripture, for the point of restoring them to a correct way of life, and then to set them straight in order that they might have a healthy Christian life. Not only is the word of God profitable for correction, but the word of God is also profitable for instruction in righteousness. That word instruction, it's the Greek word paideia. And I'm so glad that we had the, the fellow here mention pediatricians this morning. His son, I believe, is a pediatrician. Uh, I want a mom or a dad actually to raise their hand and tell me what a pediatrician is. Isaac? It's a child doctor. So that word paideia which we get our English word instruction, it literally has the idea of child training. Uh, Thayer's lexicon, it says, the whole training of a child and education of children, which relates to the cultivation of mind and morals and employs for this purpose commands and admonitions, reproof and punishment. So what's the point of that? The reason I bring that up is I'm not a parent, that's kind of obvious, but I'm just reading the word of God here, and when it says instruction in righteousness, that idea of instruction is literally child training. So when it comes to rearing children, it's so important that you're not just telling them, hey, you know, you're really annoying the living daylights out of me, and I want you to stop, so will you please stop? It, the point is, is instruct them in the word of God. S show them how their behavior is contrary to the word of God, and show them what the word of God says so that behavior can actually be corrected. The next thing that we see there is instructed in righteousness. Now, that word righteousness has the idea of integrity, virtue, and purity of life. Correctness in, in thinking, feeling, and acting. If we could just put it simply, it's right living. So the fact is, is, is if you're a Christian, 
who doesn't read your Bible on a regular and consistent basis, you won't know how God wants you to live. The, the Spirit of God has been given to us to lead us in the Christian life, but the Spirit of God leads according to the Word of God. If you are only just relying on the, the Spirit of God to sort of ethereally, ethereally lead you, then, and you're not reading your Bible, then you're really going to be easily deceived by other spirits that are out there trying to deceive you, or by your own intuition or intellect or things inside of you. When you understand the Word of God, when you're developing a relationship with the Word of God through the Spirit of God, you begin to recognize the Spirit of God's voice, and He'll lead you according to Scripture, and you can be hence instructed in righteousness. And unless you're exposing yourself to the Bible, whether it's through preaching, through consistent regular reading, and, and especially through a consistent regular reading of the Word of God, the, the times where we get together and listen to preaching are Sunday and Wednesday. That leaves five days out of the rest of the week, assuming you're coming to church on Wednesday, and then also there for two days of the week on Sunday. If you're going to have a correct Christian life, it's important for you to expose yourself on a regular basis to what God has said. A scripture that uh, can help encourage us to this lifestyle is found in 1 Peter, uh, let me look at the verse one more time, 1 Peter 1.21. It says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. There's two things I want to point out in that verse. First of all, that desire is actually a command. It, if Actually, turn there if you would. First Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Say amen when you get there. First Peter, first Peter 1, 21. Two one, okay. Second Peter two one. First, oh, all right, yeah. First Peter two one. No, that's, that's fine. So uh, it says, as, as newborn babes, comma. Note that comma. So as newborn babes, he's saying, as a newborn baby desires milk, you desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. The command is actually for you to desire the sincere milk of the word. When we think of a little baby, it's by nature hungry. It wants to consume the word of God. And God is saying, just like a newborn baby desires milk, his command to you is to desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. So you will never grow in your Christian life if you don't read the word of God, if you don't desire the word of God and ingest it, so to speak, so that it can be appropriated into your life. So to recap all of that, God is wanting us to know that Scripture is useful for doctrine, for reproof and correction, and, and instruction in righteousness. That if we could simplify those, we could say, what is right, how to get it right, and how to keep it right. But, but why? Why has God given us a Scripture that has all of these qualities? And if we look at the next verse, verse 17, we see the word, that. That word, that, is indicating the purpose for why God has given us a scripture with these different uses. So we see the first thing, that God has given us a purpose for word. And we see the person of the purpose. We see that the man of God may be perfect. That man of God idea is the fact that Paul is saying that you personally, Timothy, 
will be instructed in what's right so you can lead the flock. And that also applies to everybody here. If you're going to be instructed in the ways of righteousness, if you're going to uh, know the correct doctrine, if you're going to have a right lifestyle that's according to Scripture that doesn't have uh, worldly elements in it, you need to be exposed to the Word of God. And we see the purpose of um, why God has given us that Word. It says that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now the word there, um, perfect, has the idea of equipped. If we flip over to Ephesians chapter 4, we see that same exact word. Not in the English, sorry, but in in Greek, that same word for perfect. Actually, it is there in the the English too. Uh, Verse 4, or chapter 4, verse number... 11 was where we'll start. So Ephesians 4, verse number 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting, there's that word, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The reason God has given us people with ministry gifting is so that you, the Christian, might be equipped to do the work of the ministry. And we see that same concept being applied here by the word of God. He's saying that you, the man of God, the person, the man or woman of God, might be equipped with God's word, that you may be fully furnished unto all good works. I listened to a message that Pastor preached several weeks ago now, but he talked about the idea of good works from the book of Titus. And the simple fact is, is God has given us good works to do. The point of our Christian life isn't just to uh, sit around and read our Bibles and be happy and bright with God. God is giving you tangible things to do that require physical muscles to do them, and unless you're reading the Word of God and being led by the Spirit through the Word of God, you won't be equipped with the words, with the good works that God wants you to do. So Scripture equips you to live the life that God has called you to, and it equips you for the cause of Christ. I think of uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 12, or Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1 and 2, which says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you're going to be not conformed to the world, if you're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you need to expose yourself to the truth of the word of God. Unless you're doing that, you're going to fall prey to the deceptive elements of the world, especially for us as independent Baptists, I think that we can sometimes get a little high and lofty about our personal standards and all of this, but we can fall prey to the more deceptive elements of the world like um, materialism and what we're actually living for. In that Romans verse, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. It can be so easy to get wrapped up in living for some worldly purpose, for living for a career, for living for relationships with other people, but God is wanting you to live for him. He's wanting you to present yourself to him. And that element of worldliness will never be weeded out of you. You'll never desire the things of God, exposing yourself to the word of God and what he has written. When you read the word of God, you begin to develop a relationship with God. And when you see who God is in light of what the world is, you don't want the world and you want God. In conclusion, Timothy lived in a time of error. And Paul's admonition to Timothy 
was pay attention to the word of God. Know what it says. In our defense for this world of error as well is also the word of God. So my question for you is, will you leave yourself vulnerable? Will you leave yourself vulnerable to the winds of doctrine that are in the world, to the humanistic philosophies, to the false religions, to the deceptive Christian, so-called Christian doctrine? Or will you equip yourself on a daily basis by reading God's word? Thank you for listening to this podcast. To learn more about Grace Baptist or how to have eternal life, visit gracekettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.